0: We're beginning a sermon series this week on the book of 1 Corinthians, and tonight I'm going to set the scene. You really can't do it proper justice on a Sunday morning sermon, so tonight we'll ask the question. I hope you'll come back. I think it'll strengthen your ability to understand the whole series on 1 Corinthians. Why would Paul write a letter like this to a church in the city of Corinth. Where is Corinth and what's unique about the city? And why does he write this letter to this people at this time? And what are the issues? So if you'll come back tonight, we'll be setting the scene for the sermon series that we begin this morning in in 1 Corinthians. Oh, the names change, but the story could be retold a thousand times in a hundred different churches. Tim Smith, who'd been a member of a church in the Dallas suburbs for about five years, noticed that the position in his church of Sunday school superintendent become, became available. And, and Tim was an excellent Sunday school teacher. He thought he'd be an ideal fit for this role, this important role in his church. He went to the pastor and shared his vision and visited with the education minister about his calling and desire to serve, but to his great disappointment, the pastor and the minister of education chose someone else to fill that role that Tim really coveted. Tim was so offended that he wasn't offered the job but he didn't go to the pastor or the minister of education to talk it out. He just started mumbling and grumbling among the flock and the fold. He began to point out all the weaknesses and the mistakes of the person who took the position that he really coveted. He started attending church less while he went to all the church services. Now he was Sunday morning only, and well, Jeff Roberts, uh, another good Sunday school teacher, went up to Tim and Said, Tim, I notice you're acting strangely in church right now. I'd like to take you out to lunch after church and see, see what's wrong. Is everything okay, Tim? He said across the lunch table. I've noticed you've been absent a lot lately, and I'm getting the feeling that for you that something is just not quite right at church. You might say that, Tim said, kind of sarcastically. I'm fed up with that stupid church and its immature leadership. The Sunday school program stinks, and the pastor couldn't preach his way out of a wet paper bag. The people are loving. They have their priorities all mixed up. I'm just fed up. I'm not sure I'm going to put up with it anymore. I think I'm going to quit teaching Sunday school. Jeff was shocked. Tim, just a few months ago, you were telling everybody that this was the greatest church in town and You pointed out how loving the class that you taught was and how they cared for each other. And man, that's awfully quick for a change. What changed? It's not me, Tim said. It's the church that changed. Besides the incompetence of the Sunday school program, let me tell you a few things I'm upset about. For an hour, Jeff was amazed as Tim reeled off concern after concern after concern. And to be honest, there was some truth to much of what he said, but it was a sarcasm and the spin he put on the facts that was so alarming. In fact, before it was over with, Jeff was kind of empathizing with Tim and kind of understood some of Tim's concerns. And next thing you know, Jeff decided he quit teaching Sunday school too. Congregation, what I've learned through more than 30 years of pastoring is church problems usually aren't very theological in nature. They're usually about pride and power and position. They're most often about somebody's bruised ego. They're most often about someone's spiritual immaturity, to be honest. Well, let me contrast Tim's situation, another situation, and I know all the characters in this story. I've met all the characters in this story, so I know it to be true. The First Baptist Church of Hemphill, Texas, was voting on whether or not to construct a new state-of-the-art children's facility, which would stand out as a testimony to their community for their love for children. They wanted to teach the faith to the children, and well their building was leaking, it was old, it had asbestos, it was in so need of a new facility. But they had a Wednesday evening conference before they voted on whether or not to build the children's building, and there was a man there by the name of Paul, and Paul stood up and spoke against the vote to build this, what he thought was a lavish building. He thought there were some cheaper ways to accomplish the same task for the children. And after the discussion where Paul had kindly, but candidly expressed his concerns, the church voted. It was the whole church against Paul. He's the only one that voted no. He spoke for 15 minutes against it. The rest of the church voted yes. And after the church conference was over, Paul walked up to my friend Bobby Dagnall, who now pastors First Baptist Church of Lubbock, and handed Bobby the single largest gift toward the project. And Bobby said, Paul, you've got me all confused. You just spent 15 minutes trying to convince us why we shouldn't do this, and we voted to do it anyway, and now you're giving us this large check. I thought you were against it. He said, I was. But then the body spoke, and I'm part of the body. So now I have to be for it. Here's my contribution. And Paul never said another negative word about the building. Tim, Paul, two individuals, one incredibly spiritually mature, obviously, the other one acting like a child left out at recess when the baseball teams are pegged. The Apostle Paul writes in the book of Philippians, If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation in love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being like-minded. Maintain the same love, united in Spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind let each one of you regard the other as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, also, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Be humble, Paul says. Well, when a church fights and feuds, when a church is not unified, when their power struggles, the world listens to our message and says, no thanks. I can get that out here. But when a church is together, when the people work together and the church leaders see themselves as servants rather than power brokers or position seekers, the world hears harmonious music and is divided in sound from the concophony of noise in the broken world. There are Baptists, there are Methodists, there are Episcopalians, there's Presbyterians. There's a hundred kind of each of these. There are Lutherans, and there's Congregations, there's Disciples of Christ, there's Church of Christ, there's Mennonites. There are actually a hundred different kinds of Baptists. And new denominations spring up every single week. I can't imagine. When we get to 1 Corinthians 11... When Christ took that bread in 1 Corinthians 11, he said, This is my body, which is broken for you. It's hard to believe that in his wildest dreams, they ever saw the tragic splitting and brokenness of the church, his body. Now, there's no reason that everybody has to be a Christian in exactly the same way. There's plenty of room for differences. But if all the competing factions of Christendom were to give as much of themselves to the high calling of the holy hope within them and now focus on the relative inconsequentialities that divide them, the church would look a lot more like the kingdom of God and less like the ungodly mess that we've created. Why is the church so discordant today? Why was the church so discordant In Paul's day in the city of Corinth, the sad news is the church as a whole hasn't learned a whole lot. We haven't changed a whole lot. We, like they, get behind leaders. Leaders fight for power and position. And the churches, the world today, denominations, the world today haven't changed a whole lot from Corinth and the first century. Well, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. Here we have the central theme or idea of this first sermon. That's what, what Paul says to the people in Corinth. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and there be no divisions among you, but that you be, I want you to look at these words, you be made Complete. In the same mind and the same judgment. I don't want any divisions among you. I want you to be made whole, complete. Have the same mind amongst you. The word he has there for be complete is a word for restoring something to its original effectual condition. Restoring something to its original and effectual condition. Something is broken, you are repairing it. For example, in Mark 1.19, it also happens in Matthew's gospel. And going on a little further, Jesus saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and they were mending the nets. The word used there, the Greek word used there for James and John mending the nets is the same word used here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, for making things complete, being in unison. Just like they were mending those fishing nets, Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, you must mend the strife and the stress among you. You see, what James and John knew was that fractured fishing nets don't catch any fish, but neither do fractured churches fractured fishing nets don't catch any fish, but neither do fractured churches. Paul had left them whole, complete. And now he's learned from Chloe's people to his dismay, that there are quarrels and schisms splitting the church. Now, He says in verse 11 that he's learned this from Chloe's people. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, we don't know exactly who Chloe is. We don't know if she lived in Corinth or she might have lived in Ephesus where Paul is when he writes the letter. But her emissaries, her business partners, traveled between Corinth and Ephesus. And whether she was in Corinth or whether she was in Ephesus, either way, she got the story that Paul, that church that you started in Corinth, there was a great, harmonious, complete church. It is divided by four different divisions today. And so he says, Chloe, let the word out that you guys are divided. And so... He learned in verse 11 that there are quarrels among you. There are divisions, it says. The word divisions is, is literally the word schismata. It's the word we get the word schism from. There are schismata, there are divisions, schisms, in the church. Well, look what they were saying. Look at verse 12. Now, I mean this. that Each one of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm a Cephas, and I'm of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Are you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank my God that I baptized none of you except Crispus. And then he goes on to say, I can't remember who I baptized. I didn't come to baptize. I came to preach the gospel. There were factions in this church based upon the leaders. There was the Paul group. Maybe this was the group that stood by Paul when he faced the opposition in Corinth. So they were the Paul group. He had started the church, and, well, it's, it's natural that he would be a favorite. So there was the Paul group. And then there was the Apollos group. Now we know from the book of Acts that Apollos was an eloquent speaker, probably a better preacher than the apostle Paul, not as theologically rich, but he was learning. And really, Paul didn't see him as a competitor. Paul saw him as a comrade and strengthened the church in Corinth. But some had said, well, Apollos preaches better than Paul, so I'm going to follow Paul, Apollos. And then there was the Cephas. You know him better as the Apostle Peter group. We don't know for sure, but there is a tradition that Peter, baby Peter and his wife had gone to Corinth and had a ministry there. So there was a group that was, maybe this is a Jewish group focused on on Peter. And then you say, well, the Christ group has to surely be right. There is nothing in this context that tells us the Christ group got it right. They seem to be just another of the factions, schisms, schismata in the church. There's a group that said they were going to hold up Christ in opposition to Paul or Peter or Apollos. Now, how do we get four groups? There are a lot of theories. You know, in those days, a church didn't have a building, and they were met in a house, maybe 30 to 50 people in a house. And once you got 50 people, you start another house church. And so maybe it was each of the house churches wanted to be the most powerful and influential amongst the four churches in Corinth. And so it was a house that focused on Apollos and one that focused on Paul and one on Peter and one on Christ. And so the four house churches might be in competition Recognition. Or it might be ethnic groups. It might be different groups of people with different cultural backgrounds competing for each other. Has Christ been divided? Paul says. Is Christ a commodity or position to be haggled? Christ is one body. Now there's a lot about body in here as we go through 1 Corinthians. The idea of the soma, the body, a theology of the body is very important. So uh, you can't fragment the body. Of Christ? You see, the church depends entirely, Paul is saying, on the death on the cross. The petty rivalries and preferences for different preachers are now seen for the absurdity that there are. The church in Corinth, quite frankly, was a sorry mess. They had gotten down to faction and fighting and feuding down to a fine arm. Paul appeals to unity. But Paul has to do this in Galatia and Ephesus and Philippi and Colossae. And Peter had some of the same concerns in his epistles too. I want to point out a few things about when the church fights and feuds. First of all, when the church fights and feuds, the fellowship fractures and nobody wins. When the church fights and feuds, the fellowship fractures and nobody wins. People are hurt. People discouraged. Ministers leave the ministry never to enter again. Now, what if the Apollos group wins? What if they carry the day? Where they become the most influential? Where if they run off the other believers in Corinth? All they've done is separate themselves from three quarters of the body of believers in the city of Corinth in a very pagan city when the Christian people ought to be sticking together in the midst of conflict. What would they win? if they won. In Montgomery County, Alabama, there's a cemetery called the Bethel Cemetery. For years, it was completely buried by overgrowth. No one even knew that the cemetery was there. All the tombstones were were covered up. It was shrouded in shrubbery. Thickets and thistles had covered it all. And finally, another Baptist church volunteered to go and clean it out. And they found that all the, the tombstones were standing and all the markers were there. But this is back, a graveyard from the 1800s, early 1800s. So there was nobody to remember and nobody was cleaning it up. And it looked terrible. And so if you go today to Montgomery County, the east side of US 31, you'll find a sign which says Bethel Cemetery, 1818. If you look at the history, the cemetery, as is in the South in those days, was connected to a church. And yet the church wasn't there anymore. It was a church constituted the Bethel Baptist Church the same year that Alabama acquired statehood in 1819. At first, the church was thriving and doing well, but now it was shrouded in shrubbery and covered by camouflage. Nobody even knew the cemetery was there. In 1837... The church had a fight about missions or against missions. Pro-missions, and it's hard for us to believe we're so mission-minded. There's actually a vein or a branch of Baptists who don't want to do missions. Missions or anti-missions, and there's on the marker, they discovered February the 13th, 1819, it says, the church founded February 13th, 1819, and then it says split between the primitive and the missionary Baptists in 1837 building fell into disrepair. Somebody hauled off the boards, sold them off as scrap. As so all you had was an overgrown cemetery. Which, oddly enough, became kind of a haunting, foreboding shadow of the church itself. Dead because it fights. When the church fights and fused, nobody wins. Secondly, the disharmony of the church is usually about the smallest things. Disharmony in church is usually about the smallest thing. The Hartford Institute of Religion says that 51% of congregations, this makes me so thankful for you, 51% of congregations will face a serious conflict every three years. 50 over half the churches in the last three years have faced a serious conflict or, or confrontation. Stop being fractured in fellowship and focus on the preaching of Christ Jesus, Paul says. Now, there's a lot of room. This is one of the beauties of being a Baptist. There's a lot of room in First Baptist Church for you to believe differently than the pastor does or any other staff member does. There are some essentials, some fundamentals of the faith we all must embrace to be in positions of leadership. But beyond that, most things are not worth the fight. I dare say in this room that all of us believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. I doubt any of you would debate with me the fact that Jesus Christ lived a perfect and sinless life. I bet everybody in this room would say something really special happened on Calvary, on that cross. There is some way in the mystery of God that Jesus died in our place, that we are cleansed by his blood, that he paid for our sins, that the wrath of God's been satisfied, and there is something God was active in the crucifixion of his son. I bet everybody in this room would agree with that. I, I really believe even the miraculous, that all of us would say, we believe that he had a bodily resurrection. We believe that he was seen by the apostles and the ladies and others for a period of 40 days. And we believe one day he's coming again for his bride, the church. Now, if we all, and we believe that we should live out our faith in a way, ethically, that's pleasing to the body of Christ and the tenets taught by Christ. Now, if we all agree on that, we agree about everything that we need to be agreeable about. All the schisms are not about theology, usually. They're usually about position and power. Here's the third thing I would say this morning. As you testify by your own Unity and harmony, church splits are not inevitable. You might suppose that if you put people in positions of power and programming and all put them into one pot, that that something's going to go wrong. That it always goes wrong, but it doesn't. It doesn't have to be that way. If all of us focus on the harmony of the Lordship of Christ Jesus and put aside our own personal agendas and preferences for power, if we wouldn't bring our frustrations at work and our frustrations from the family or the household to the church house, if we would live lives, you know, you know what Paul says in Galatians, you can tell if your life is invaded by the Spirit of Christ, if it does, you, you can be described this way, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When you're a room full of people who... And dwell by the Holy Spirit and live gentle and loving and kind and patient lives, there's not much division likely to happen in that church. You have a wonderful history of being a church and a people of unity, a people of one voice. Oh, we might sometimes think differently about things. We don't have to be in unison, but we do have to be. In unity. This church has stood since, are you ready? If you didn't know, 1889, over 130 years. We have been leaders in this community and we said to the world, the people of God can work together to fulfill the great commission in harmony and love and peace. May it always be. Guard the good spirit within us. Guard the unity of this church. It is never something to be taken for granted. Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, I left you, you were whole. Now your fishing nets are broken you're not going to catch any fish in Corinth. Make it complete. Mend, Mend the nets. Preach the story of Jesus. Jesus himself said, love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Proverbs 6, the proverbial sage says, there are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven which are abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies and one who spread strife among the brothers. And one of the things God hates, one who spread strife among the brothers. The church at Corinth was ineffectual. They had lost their witness. They were feuding and fighting over their favorite preacher, and they were not going to be effective. Thank you for being you. Let's pray. Oh, God, may none of us have guilt on our hands for ever causing strife amongst the brethren. And Father, we do prize the unity that that pervades our fellowship. Not always sameness, but always unity. Father, I I pray this morning, if there's someone who feels called to be a part of a harmonious church like this, that today would be the day, should your spirit call them, that they would come forward. Maybe there's someone else here this morning who has witnessed the love of this church family, and they'd say, "I, I need a family. I need a father. I need a savior, a brother in my Christ. And I confess him today as my crucified and resurrected brother however your spirit would call us to respond, may we have the courage to do so. Amen.